Welcome to Her Story, a retelling of the biblical narratives featuring women in scripture with Joanne Guarnieri Hagemeyer, Grace and Peace Joanne. The rough and tumble years reflected in the books of Joshua and Judges have prompted many to question God's character and claims of love. Why were whole tribes and people groups slated for annihilation? Does God not care about the stories of all those people? Even though I can't fully answer those questions either, I can say God cared deeply for a Canaanite woman who came to faith during that time. Here is the story of Rahab, a standout among the Exodus pioneers. Each story in this series was originally produced as a YouTube presentation, so links to YouTube, Grace and Peace Joanne blog posts, and the books I've written are all provided below. As Rahab stood on the foothills of Canaan, watching Jericho burn, she was seeing everything she knew her whole life and what should have been her story going up in smoke. But for the grace of God, that would have been her. She may have even wondered to herself so many years later, how is it that God saved me? How is it that my life story took such an unexpected, wrenching, and yet ultimately beautiful turn? loved as I am by God and by God's people, and by this amazing man, Solomon, who has given me these precious sons and daughters. I wonder if she was alive when Boaz was born. Even if she wasn't, I feel sure her story was told to her great-grandchildren and her great-great-grandchildren, as families will do. In just the first few verses of Joshua 2, we discover Rahab as a high-profile person of interest in one of the most prominent cities in Canaan. Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men you've come to you, who've entered your house, for they have come only to search out the land. A prostitute? The spies were there? How did the king know to contact Rahab? Later on in the story, we find out she had enough flax on the roof of her establishment to successfully hide two men and already had woven a rope of flax thick enough to lower them down from the city wall. And this rope was also dyed as brilliant scarlet which would have been visible for miles. So who was this woman? Well, what was her profession? Let's start there. In Hebrew, most words, both nouns and verbs, have a three-letter root, and they're all consonants. The vowels were added a whole long time later. So the three consonants that make up the word prostitute in Hebrew are Z and H. And they're the same three letters that make up the Hebrew word for a female who gives food and provisions. So Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, asserted that Rahab kept an inn, which is katagogion in Greek. Nevertheless, both James and the writer of Hebrews used the word porne to describe Rahab's profession, which does mean prostitute, although it can also figuratively mean idolater. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute, hey porne, also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road. And again, by faith, Rahab the prostitute, hey, porne, 
did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. So if we put that all together, we get Rahab as a canny businesswoman, either an innkeeper or a prostitute, but probably both, a weaver and a purveyor of luxury dyes, running a prominent establishment near the palace, located in the casement of Jericho's wall, which was prime real estate. And her place was apparently well known to the king as a first stop for international travelers. She was also wealthy enough to have a robust enterprise in textiles and was involved in the lucrative trade of luxury dyes. So what about her personality? Well, definitely confidence and courage. It took Rahab to misdirect the king's men and hide Joshua's spies on a roof. The woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said to the king's men, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Knowing the city's gates had been shut behind the spies' pursuers, Rahab employed quick thinking and creative problem-solving to get the spies out of Jericho and back to their commander. She lowered them down from her window because it was down Jericho's massive bulwark where her establishment was positioned, and she also got a promise to keep their visit and Joshua's plans a secret. We learn in this that fear is the enemy of faith. Throughout her story, Rahab portrayed keen intelligence, valor, and bold certainty. Knowing the king's military tactics, she gave the spies reliable strategy for evading capture. And foreseeing the outcome of the battle, she secured a binding oath that she and her family would be spared God's judgment. She sent them away, and they departed. Then she tied the crimson cord in the window. How could a Canaanite idolater even know about Yahweh, let alone abandon the gods of her people to follow the God of Israel? Well, it had been 40 years since God's mighty contest with all the gods of Egypt and God's astounding victory over the Egyptian army at the Red Sea and the Israelites' subsequent conquests in their journey through the wilderness. Rahab described the general response in Jericho and presumably the rest of Canaan. Dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. As soon as we heard about God's invincible triumphs, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. Yet Rahab had a heart attuned to God, for she told the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab spoke with the prophetic certainty, giving the spies an oracle from the Lord. The Lord has given you the land, not just Jericho, but all of Canaan. And Rahab spoke from a personal knowledge of God, who is sovereign over the entire cosmos and everything in it. When the time came, she gathered her family into her home and throughout the entire battle kept her family there. What must that have taken? Hearing the screams of the people, the crash and thunder of collapsing walls, and their own room rattling and quaking.
unshakable assurance in God. Just as the Hebrews had painted their doors with the blood of the Lamb, so Rahab's scarlet cord hung from her window, and just as God spared all who remained inside those blood-marked homes, so God spared Rahab and her family inside her crimson-marked home. Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since. In a way, Rahab and her family can be seen as a picture of every believer, turning away from the old and godless life of sin, placing unswerving faith in Christ, and being welcomed into God's family forever. At the end of her life, Rahab must have savored the wonderful destiny she saw God had always had in mind for her. But Rahab couldn't possibly have fully appreciated the full scope of the story God had written into her life the meta-narrative, the grand, enormous story that God was writing for all humanity. In order to fully appreciate how important Rahab was in the magnificent plan of God to save God's people, you and I need to go back thousands of years and then peer forward into eternity. So in talking about Rahab's story, I'm going to ask you to keep track of several other storylines. So let's begin with Salmon the man who was about to look beyond Rahab's fringy past and see instead into Rahab's heart, her beautiful character and her fervent faith in God. This remarkable man must have loved Rahab as God loved Rahab, and he joined his life with her in marriage. So who was Salmon? Our first hint is actually found in the Chronicles of the Kings, where we find Salmon's family tree and discover that he was a descendant of Jacob through Judah. Now there's a story in Genesis that tells about how Judah slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar, thinking she was a temple prostitute. That union produced twins, one of whom was named Perez. And it's through Perez's line that Solomon descended. I think it's highly likely Solomon knew that story about Judah and Tamar, and it taught him to see beyond the exterior, beyond the circumstances in a person's life. Think of the legacy Solomon would have had when he loved Rahab and chose to marry her. Through their own great-great-grandchildren came Boaz, another man who saw beyond a person's cultural background, beyond who they used to be, and straight into their heart and their character and life of faith, because Boaz became the kinsman-redeemer of a Moabite woman named Ruth, and their little grandson was named David a man after God's own heart who would one day unite all Israel whose dynasty God would establish for all eternity through God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Rahab's story actually begins clear back in Genesis with the patriarchs. Abraham, the father of faith, to Isaac, to Jacob, the father of the nation Israel, to Judah, the lion and progenitor of kings. And Rahab's story is tied up with another Canaanite woman, Tamar, who had lived 500 years before in a little town named Adullam, which is just 12 miles from Bethlehem. Rahab didn't know any of the history I'm telling you about right now, until she married Solomon. But once she learned about Solomon's family stories, she may have come to understand God's amazing way of redeeming every single thing. You and I may be broken by life's calamities, but with God, we are never abandoned. Now, stick with me as we 
delve into Salman's sad family history. During a very dark time in his life, Salman's many great-grandfather Judah separated himself from his father Jacob, who had become inconsolable with grief over what he thought was the death of his favorite son Joseph. Judah turned his back on his grieving father and also on his own part in what he had done to Joseph. He decided to start his life afresh somewhere else, away from the tragedy he and his brothers had engineered, away from God, away from responsibility. So he pitched his tents in Adullam and stayed with a man named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He got married, he settled down in Cana, and he raised three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Years passed till it was time for Judah to select a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, and he chose a Canaanite girl named Tamar. But Ur was so desperately evil and horrible that God personally put Ur to death. We don't know how, but it's noteworthy that God could not bear to let Ur live another day. What must that have been like for Tamar to be married to and to have to live with such a man? Now, as was the custom of that ancient day, Tamar had asked that she be given in marriage to Ur's younger brother, Onan, and Jacob agreed. So Onan, who was also desperately wicked, was perfectly happy to have sex with Tamar, but he had no intention of fathering children with her. So God personally struck Onan down too. Now, if I had been Tamar, I'd have moved on, but she didn't. She asked to be given in marriage to the third son, and Judah hemmed and hawed, and he put her off for so long that she finally realized he was not going to do the right thing. So years rolled by. Judah's wife died, and one day Hirah the Adulamite dropped by Judah's house, and he said, Come on, you need to get out of the house. Let's go up for the sheep shearing festival. A little fresh air, it's going to do you some good. Now it seems Tamar had not given up her hope, her deep desire, to be counted among God's own people. So here's what she did. In Tamar's day, just about every street corner had a kiosk to perform religious rites, which really means there was a tent, an idol, an incense burner, and a prostitute. Religion in those days evidently was pretty spicy. So when she got the word that Judah was heading up to the festival, she saw this as her opportunity to try once again to be knit into God's family. So she disguised herself as one of the curbside shrine prostitutes, and she pretended that she was open for business. She placed herself strategically in Judah's way and made sure that she entertained only one client, Judah himself. I wonder what she knew about Judah that convinced her this plan could work. Because the plan did work. Once at the festival, Judah began to feel a little frisky, he saw what he thought was a shrine prostitute, and he did what any red-blooded Canaanite man would have done. He came in to the disguised Tamar for a little fertility ritual. But before Tamar agreed, she asked him what he could pay her, and he promised a goat once he got home. Tamar said, nothing doing. I need some collateral. So she made him keep his promise, made sure that Judah would give her not one, not even two, but all three of his unique identifying possessions. His seal, the cord that went with it, and his staff. It's kind of like asking for his driver's license, his credit card, and his car registration. 
Now, it's possible that Judah's seal was perforated and it was attached to his staff with a cord for safekeeping, and that would have had all three things into one possession. Later on, when Judah sent back proper payment with his servant, the shrine prostitute had mysteriously disappeared, along with all of Judah's personal identification. Now, once it got out that Tamar, the unwed widow, was pregnant, Judah was furious, and he ordered that she be burned alive for her crime. Think of his hypocrisy when he condemned her to death for being caught out in promiscuity. When Tamar wisely showed him his own staff and seal, Judah was instantly convicted. He confessed his sin publicly, and he reinstated Tamar. Not long after that, their twins, Perez and Zerah, were born. And it's through Perez's line that come the generations of sons that bring us to Salmon. Now, why did I tell you that long story about people who lived centuries before Rahab and Solomon? Because that's how God writes God's story into our lives. You and I are profoundly shaped by those who have come before us, just as our stories will profoundly shape those who come after us. We actually don't know that much about Solomon himself, except that his name means peaceable, perfect, he that rewards. And we know that he loved the former Canaanite prostitute Rahab and married her. Do you see the synchronicity in Rahab's story and Tamar's story? Tamar disguised herself as a shrine prostitute in order to get Judah to sleep with her and give her the son she so longed for, and also to bring her into the family of God. Centuries later, God redeemed that story through Solomon, who married an actual former prostitute. And whereas Tamar's sons Perez and his brother were born into unhappy circumstances, Rahab's sons were born into a loving home and a God-fearing family. And one day, a man named Boaz would carry all that compassion and empathy and faithfulness and wisdom within him. Often you and I want to rewrite some part of our story when we grow up, and that's why we seem to marry people who remind us of our growing up family, our father, our mother, or maybe a sibling. We want to rewrite the story. We want to write a new story where the father loves his children and notices them and spends time with them and talks with them, or maybe a new story where the mother is wise and gentle and teaches her children how to live life well. A new story where this time the husband and wife don't fight. They love each other and stay married. Or maybe a new story where the children are treated kindly and are supported and, and encouraged and, and so on. You get the gist. I wonder if Rahab would talk with her children about having a foreign mother. How that might have been hard for them. Trying to fit in with the other kids. Especially considering how God had wiped out the place where she'd come from, Jericho. Maybe Solomon would say to his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren how thankful he was when God brought him Rahab in the most amazing way. Because in a sense, Solomon was a picture of Christ who would one day be born of his line for his great courage in choosing Rahab and for his manner of choosing her. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Rewriting stories, redeeming stories, and the people in them is God's specialty. 
Rahab's great-great-grandson Boaz literally rewrote a story in his family's past, too. Centuries before, his many greats uncle Onan refused to be the kinsman redeemer for the Canaanite Tamar, who longed to be included with the people of God. Now 500 years later, Boaz gladly gave his heart to the godly Moabite Ruth and became her kinsman redeemer. The great arc of Rahab's story finds fulfillment in Matthew's Gospel. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And David, the ancestor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our own kinsman redeemer, a compassionate and wise Lord who looks beyond our own past, beyond who you and I are, and straight into our hearts. It is God who loved us first and chose to join the Lord's life with ours. In this we can know that God redeems the stories of every person who puts their faith in God through Christ. What a breathtaking legacy God gave Rahab, the retired prostitute from fallen Jericho. How could she have known what God was going to do through her? But when her heart was stirred by God's Spirit, she said, Yes, Lord, and served God and God's purposes with unreserved passion. What legacy will you and I leave when we do the same? What magnificent story is the Lord now writing into our own tragedies and traumas and calamities as we put our trust in God. Oh Lord God, what a good story for each one of us today to know that you are redeeming our lives and our stories and are writing a great arc of love and compassion through each one who has put their faith in you. We pray this in great thanksgiving to your glorious grace. Over the course of about 400 years, 12 judges of Israel are recorded. Only one of them was already guiding Israel as the people's choice when God called upon her to defend her people. In the upcoming podcast, meet Deborah in the Exodus Pioneers.